This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. It's time for Speak Legal, conversations with Community Law Otago, made with the support of Law Faculty, University of Otago. Well, every Thursday morning we take some time to explore aspects of New Zealand law that affect our daily lives. Um, might not be things that necessarily come up uh, today, but to further down the track or at some stage we're going to be um, immersing ourselves in some kind of legal processes, aren't we? Today we're going to look at an issue around criminal law and uh, the issue is whether uh, people are fit to stand trial and what all that means and the implications of that. Uh, here to tell us more about that this morning is Beth Clearwater. Morning, Beth. Lovely to have you with us. Thanks for coming Hi, in. Lovely to be here. Uh, so fitness to stand trial pretty much comes from the origins of other concerns about capacity that we have in the law where we make uh, people legally responsible for certain actions um, and regulate their ability to uh, whether they're able to uh, follow through of those. So it all sort of comes from a case called Pritchard all the way in 1836 in London, uh, which was about this deaf and dumb man who could read and write uh, whether he had capacity to stand trial. And it was found that he was able to plead, but he wasn't able to follow the evidence of the trial. So it was found that uh, he did not have capacity because um, he was not able to understand and participate in the trial. Uh, so we've co- incorporated this into New Zealand law with the Criminal Procedure uh, Mentally Impaired Persons Act 2003. Okay, so that act, I guess, details uh, all the ins and outs of capacity. Uh, so in relation to criminal procedures, that uh, lists how that is uh, understood and what you would need to have in order to be fit to stand trial. So in other forms of capacity are contained in other types of legislation, uh, but that Act details um, what you need to be able to understand in order to be fit to stand trial. Uh, so that includes like the ability to plead, um, as in the case before, um, ability to understand the nature and purpose uh, or the consequences of the proceeding, uh, to communicate with your counsel um, and conducting a defence. Um, so in order to be found unfit to stand trial, you first have to be found mentally impaired at the time of the trial, and that is based on the evidence of two health assessors. Uh, so mental impairment isn't actually defined in the Act, but uh case law has interpreted it pretty widely. So it doesn't just include mental disorders like schizophrenia, um, bipolar. It also includes intellectual disabilities, but can even be extended to other mental conditions like neurological conditions, um, substance abuse, brain injury, and it can even apply to chronic pain, um, as there was one case where they argued that. But you can um, mitigate that by just having a particularly comfy chair in um, that case. So, All right. So <laughs> they can identify that there is this impairment, and then the next question is, what's the impact of that impairment? Yeah, exactly. So um, then also whether you are actually unfit to stand trial because of that mental impairment. Um, so it's based on a balance of probabilities. Uh, so basically just you're more likely than not, uh, rather than like a beyond reasonable doubt kind of um, assessment. And so you can be fit for certain purposes and not others. So um, 
there was one case, uh, Crown and Carroll, where the accused was able to have capacity to give consent to waive their client privilege, privilege uh, but was not found to have capacity to stand trial for other reasons. Uh, but it can also depend on how complex uh, the trial is. So if you're just pleading guilty to like a shoplifting charge, that's pretty different to a very complex, drawn-out um, like criminal trial. Uh, there was one case uh, where the accused was found unfit because they couldn't understand a cutthroat defence where you're basically um, like ripping off other people that were also um, in line with the crime um, in order to protect yourself. So Beth, case law is informing um, this all the time, I guess. There are um, cases here, but also overseas. Yeah, um, in Victoria, in Australia, there's one pretty important case that's come up called Presser, and that has sort of uh, expanded upon, they have a pretty similar act to us, um, expanded upon what actually participating and communicating with counsel really means. Um, and we have actually considered that in New Zealand cases. That is part of our law, um, but we still, it, it's a consideration. So it's not entirely the same as in Victoria, but there is um, lots of conversations going on about whether uh, you actually have a proper level of understanding under our legislation um, or if we need to actually expand that a bit more. Because um, there have been some cases where the court has allowed a defendant to be fit to stand trial where there could be questions about whether uh, the average person would consider them fit. Um, so there was one case called the Solicitor General and Doughty uh, where he wanted to run a defence about um, he had this delusional belief, I believe he was um, bipolar or schizophrenic, that Inland Revenue and the Commissioner were prosecuting him and others in the community because they wanted him to commit suicide. And the Court of Appeal held that the court can't intervene on what the accused choice of defence is because uh, that gets into a pretty murky area of law of deciding what's in a uh, accused's best interests and then also there's issues of client privilege um, whether the court would be able to ever step in in that kind of situation to say they know best they didn't want to get up against but I'm sure um, most people can agree that a person's belief that the inland revenue is trying to force you to commit suicide might not be in their best interest to run as a defence so there's questions about whether that needs to be expanded. Okay, so <clears throat> let's say that an accused has been found unfit to stand trial. Is that the end of the matter? What What then? Uh, so you don't just, if you're unfit to stand trial, they don't just like let you off um, and let you go on your way. There's still a procedure um, after that to determine if they were still involved in the offence. But um, it is complicated because, of course, they're unfit to stand trial, so they can't have a normal trial as you would with a jury or a judge um, actually evaluating with witnesses and all that kind of thing. So they actually do a trial of the facts, which is different to a normal case where you usually have the mental element, the mens rea, um, like intention and all that kind of thing. So that's actually omitted in this trial of the facts. And it just focuses on whether, on the balance of probabilities, the um, accused caused the act or omission that forms the basis of the offence that they're charged with. So that's different from normal trials where that's beyond reasonable doubt. Um, 
So that can be a concern for some accused because that's a much lower threshold that um, the Crown would need to prove that they are guilty of that offence. Kind of almost moves it into kind of a civil test of... um, Yeah, yeah. So it is quite a delicate... um, balancing act because you also want to protect like some of these are quite serious crimes um, the victims of those crimes but also trying to provide a fair um, environment for those that are not mentally capable of understanding what they're being charged with or the procedures they're going through Um, there are procedures uh, through um, other acts where you might not actually go to prison if you are found convicted you would likely be confined in a hospital if you were found um, unfit it's a similar sort of route they go for if you have a defense of insanity Um, so still a pretty large um, infringement on your freedoms but perhaps not as um, as scary as necessarily going to prison Um, but yeah it's definitely a pretty hard balance to find between being excessively paternalistic and sort of too readily trying to find the the accused unfit um, because it's pretty much taking away their ability to freely uh, defend themselves to the same standard in the criminal law. Um, But also you want to uh, protect the victims and then also make sure that they're... um, not being put through a trial where they don't understand what's happening. Such an interesting area of the law. You know, there will be this... I guess it's particularly for serious crimes, this expectation and hope from the community that someone will be held to account. And it is potentially sometimes from the outside when a a defence like this or a a, a claim that a a defendant is unfit to stand trial, that can feel like a little bit of a cop-out from society's perspective when they're so used to seeing someone held to account in that way. But of course, you can completely fool the reasons you've said, understand why it's really necessary to to make these assessments. Yeah, definitely... Um um, a pretty tricky balance uh, to play between trying to protect everyone and also making sure that people still have their rights at trial. Absolutely. Great stuff. Criminal law, something that particularly interests you, Beth? Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> hopefully um, in my last year now, so hopefully I'll get a job out of it. But <laughs> well, Good luck with that. Hey, and thank you for bringing such an interesting topic to us today for Speak Legal. We look forward to hearing from uh, Community Law Otago at the same time next week. Community Law Otago. Free legal advice and support for the people of Otago. Visit our weekday advice clinics at 169 Princess Street, Dunedin. Clinic session times are available from the website communitylawotago.com. Ring 474-1922 or 0800-169-333 if calling from outside Dunedin. Speak Legal is made with support from the law faculty, University of Otago, training for life. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.